Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. In the summer of 1984, Purple Rain was released. I'd only known who Prince was for a year at this point, but I loved him already. My parents wouldn't let me go see the movie because I was only seven, but I knew the soundtrack backwards and forwards, especially the song Darling Nikki. My nickname is Nikki, so I was thrilled there was a song where Prince said the name only my closest loved ones knew me by. And then I listened to the lyrics. I knew a girl named Nikki. I guess you could say she was a sex fiend. I met her in a hotel lobby. I have a very clear memory of my neighbor singing Darling Nikki to me when I went next door to play. Their grandmother was on the porch, sucking her teeth and frowning at me something awful. She told my friend not to sing such a song to me. And that's when I knew it was a bad song. Something really naughty. This awkward moment of a kid listening to Darla Nikki in front of adults happened to a lot of young people discovering Prince's music back then. Like this fan I met in Brooklyn. Nobody knows until they tell you when you're a child that something's wrong. So I grew up and my favorite song was Darling Nikki and I knew all the lyrics and I would sing it to my best friends over the phone and I would get in so much trouble. But I had no idea why until somebody told me it was a problem. And once you realized that Darling Nikki was a song that you should not have been singing at that age, right. did it put you onto Prince even more? Yes. yes. I wanted to sing it more. I got banned from listening to the album for a little while, but it made me want to listen to it more because it was my favorite song. Like, why am I being taken away from something that I care about and love so much? Now I'm discovering something new. But now I also understand as an adult, right? In hindsight, why my parents were like, or my mom was like, whoa. <laughs> Some parents may have turned the radio off or made their kids get rid of the album. But Tipper Gore, who was married to Senator Al Gore at the time, went a bit further. As parents, we believe we have a right to some consumer guidance in our effort to protect our own children from material that we believe may be inappropriate for them. She and a few other wives of some well-connected men in Washington, D.C., decided that parents deserved a heads up about the explicit lyrics their children were listening to. They formed the Parents Music Resource Center, or the PMRC for short, and took their concerns about explicit lyrics all the way to the U.S. Senate. They argued that if movies came with ratings for what's appropriate for audiences, music should too. 
They created what they called the Filthy 15, a list of 15 songs that contained lyrics they felt were objectionable. And on that list, a funky, soulful ode to a bold sex fiend named Nikki. With Purple Rain, Prince achieved his first number one on the Billboard 100 with the now classic When Doves Cry. But with Darlin' Nikki, he changed the course of American music forever. And Darlin' Nikki wasn't even Prince's only contribution to the list. The singer Vanity, Prince protege extraordinaire, best known for the 1982 hit Nasty Girl, was targeted for lyrics in her song, Strap On Robbie Baby, which included lines like, Don't you provoke me. Come on, stroke me. Also on the list was a song Prince wrote under one of his mini aliases, Alexander Nevermind, Sheena Easton's naughty 1984 hit Sugar Walls, with lyrics like, Let me take you somewhere you've never been. I can show you things you've never seen. I can make you never want to fall in love again. The purple one knew how to turn faces red one way or another. This is The Prince Mixtape, and I'm your host, Nicole Perkins. Buckle up, everybody. The castle's about to start spinning. first heard the record, I, I remember I could still picture it. I was standing behind the console and I was all alone in this room. And I looked around thinking, oh, other people have to hear this. I can't wait until the other Prince fans hear this. Oh, this is so amazing. Because at that moment, I just felt like a fan who was getting this rare privilege of hearing this brand new track before it came out. I just remember that feeling of awe. This is Susan Rogers, a Prince fan who also got the once-in-a-lifetime chance to work for Prince as his engineer from 1983 to 1987. Prince had just had his biggest album to date, 1999, which went quadruple platinum. By the time Susan left Los Angeles and moved to Minneapolis, Prince had already started working on the Purple Rain album at his home in Chanhassen, Minnesota, Right across the hall from his own bedroom was a small room Prince had converted into a recording studio. Susan had been a studio maintenance technician for Crosby, Stills, and Nash in L.A., so she was well prepared to step into Prince's studio and get his equipment running in perfect condition. Now, it's not so unusual today for people to make records in their home, but in the early 1980s, not many people had studios in their home. The equipment was big, a tape machine is big, a console is big. But Prince had a really nicely outfitted home studio. Susan got to work. After a few days, she still hadn't talked to her boss, the famously standoffish musician whose music she adored. My first sighting was at his home. We were delivering a new console for him, and that's why I had been hired, is to install this new recording console in his home studio. So the guys were there with the truck, and I was helping get the console and the things off the truck. And um, 
I'd been there for a few hours. I needed to use the restroom. And I asked Sandy Scipioni, who was Prince's personal assistant, if I could use the restroom. And she said, sure. And she pointed at the front door. She said, just go in there upstairs and on the right, you'll see it. I opened up the front door and this little figure wrapped in a towel with a shower cap on came flying down the stairs, made a U-turn at the landing and went flying downstairs into the bedroom. It was Prince. He had just gotten out of the shower. And I thought, oh my God, that's my new boss. I haven't even been introduced to him yet. And the first time I see him, he's wearing a towel and a shower cap. Oh no, I'm doomed. (laughs) So I just, what can I do? You know, just carry on. He never said anything about it. He probably never remembered it. I honestly don't know what I'd do seeing Prince fresh out of the shower, live and in the flesh. Just the thought of it makes me sweat a little bit. Susan spent the next few days working alone in the basement studio. She could hear Prince upstairs, but didn't cross paths with him until she finished all her tasks and asked Prince's assistant what she should work on next. So she called him and he came down the stairs. I don't remember what he was wearing, but he was dressed this time. And he stopped on the stairwell just a few steps above me. I was standing at the base of the stairs. And he didn't say hello or anything. He just right away started in with questions. What's going on with this? What's happening with that? Did you fix this? Is this working? And I answered his questions. And he said, uh, okay, come back tomorrow at 10 o'clock or something like that. And he turned around to leave. And there was a little voice inside my head that said, no, 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 no. Don't let it start like this. I just moved 2,300 miles away from every human being I've ever known in Southern California, where I'm from. I can't let it start this way. And he turned to walk away. And I, and I stopped him. I said, excuse me, Prince. And he turned around and said, yes. And I stuck out my hand to shake his hand. I said, I'm Susan Rogers. And I was there with my hand hanging out there. And uh, he got this look of amusement on his face. <laughs> he was amused by that. And he stuck his hand out and we shook hands and we both made kind of a little bow. He said, I'm Prince. And I, I remember nodding and thinking, okay, good. All right. Okay, good. Now we're off to a good start. Something about that felt right and necessary. I need you to know I'm a human being, just like you. And yeah, you're my boss and I'm your employee. You can fire me at any time. I can quit at any time. We'll know each other through this contract. But beneath that contract, remember we're human beings. And I also want you to see me as a person because that's how I'm going to see you. And that worked out for us. And from that handshake on, Susan and Prince worked well together. Susan writes in her book, This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You, that Prince liked to say they lived on the same street. And maybe that was because of a shared sensibility that included an affection for soul and R&B. I knew his ear. We listened to the same music growing up. We had the same taste in music. So he could mention, I remember one day in the studio mentioning Frankie Beverly and Mays. And I remember One Way featuring Al Hudson. And I just swooned when he would mention those bands because I knew those records. I loved those records. So same frame of reference. It made me, in hindsight, a really good fit for him. Prince quickly recognized Susan's potential and gave her more responsibility in the studio. 
I joined as an audio technician, and audio technicians typically did not work with the music per se. All they did was repair the equipment. But Prince figured, well, if you know how the equipment works, why don't you just go ahead and use it? And he he put me in the engineering chair. So I was transitioning from being a tech to being an engineer and helping him with his recordings. Technically, I knew how to do that. He was teaching me his ear and how he liked sound to be manipulated as we went along. So I was not an artistic collaborative partner from the downbeat. However, as our time together unfolded, I became more and more of a contributor in that way. As the audio technician for Prince, part of her job was to play back versions of recordings that were still in process, so that Prince knew what else needed to be done on the track. But Darla Nikki was pretty much done. So her first big musical moment on the job? Listening to that track on the speakers in Prince's studio. Susan was one of the first to hear that final version. The first tape I ever put up in that room was Darling Nikki of Purple Rain. And I got to listen to that all by myself in that room on those big studio monitors. Talk about having your hair blown back. What an amazing moment that was. (laughs) No one else was making records like that at that time, certainly not all on their own. So you listen to the drums and the bass and the guitar and the keyboards. It all came from the same mind. On top of that, consider that vocal. That's a church soul preacher vocal who's raising the rafters, screaming as high as any heavy metal singer ever got, and yet infusing it with that R&B soul. This record sounds nothing like R&B, doesn't sound like typical rock either. It's uniquely Prince. So when Prince made music, and you can hear this on the album that was called uh, 1983, A Piano and a Microphone. It's just Prince alone at the, at the piano at home. And you can hear when he plays that he knows about jazz and he knows about blues. He knows about gospel, but he's none of those artists. You can hear in his right hand especially that he's a pop music maker. Now, he could have played something soulful and melodic, and he did on other records, but not on this record. On this record, only thing he wants to communicate is passion, is lust and excitement and the thrill of being attracted to this person, Nikki, who's probably dangerous, probably bad for him. So it's pure passion on every instrument. When I first heard Darling Nikki, my body immediately responded. It started off like a fun little frolic, so my arms and hips began to move as if I wanted to skip down the street. But then Prince's voice came in, and it was so full of aching, I stood in place. Prince was always stopping me in my tracks. This was a man moving from his first taste to addiction in just over four minutes of lyrical and musical storytelling that affected anyone who listened to it. Darling Nikki wasn't just daring in his lyrics, it was also on the cutting edge of music. 
It really signified Prince was unlike any other artist the world had ever seen. There could be no doubt about how talented he was or about how meticulous he was when it came to making music. Soon after realizing how well he and Susan worked together, he promoted her to engineer, making her one of a handful of women to work with musicians of his caliber at the time. That meant she had to get up to speed on the particular way that Prince liked to work in the studio and do it fast. Prince did nearly everything himself. He had a very strong sense of what we call your sonic signature. He knew how he wanted things to sound. So all he needed an engineer to do for him was to facilitate the sound that he was imagining in his own head. There was so much work going on in 1983 with preparation for the movie that I was having to come up to speed really quickly with him to learn his sounds, how he liked things panned, for example. He liked the hi-hat on the left and how he liked his clean guitar tone to sound and how he liked his the reverb on his snare drum. I was learning all that very quickly and also learning about his world as he and members of the revolution were in rehearsal for the movie and ultimately for the tour as well. So um, I was learning all aspects of Prince at that very early stage in my time with him. When we think about once-in-a-lifetime talents, we like to imagine them stepping into a room and making a simple swipe of the paintbrush or hitting a perfect note as soon as they open their mouths, and we immediately recognize it as genius. But that kind of unearthly skill still takes earthly discipline, trial and error, and work. Maybe Prince could hear the rock opera of Purple Rain perfectly in his mind, but he still needed to bring it to life within the boundaries of human technology. At this point in the early 1980s, audio recording science was still fairly limited, but Prince had figured out a way to use it to his advantage. Prince's sound, his ear was very unique. We know that about Prince. And one of the things he could do extraordinarily well is arrange music in his head, not completely, but pretty damn close, before he ever started committing things to tape. So in this modern world, people can record hundreds of individual tracks. So if you're not sure what it is you're doing or what sound you want, you just add another track and you just keep experimenting and experimenting. But in the days of analog tape, you were limited. You had 24 tracks in the 1980s. So your musical arrangement needed to work with just 24 tracks. And Prince was a maestro at doing that. So that meant that Prince with all the skill that he had of imagining how the final record would sound in his head, he worked very, very fast. So what we had to do was have his as many of his instruments as possible set up and routed and sent to the tape machine before he even walked in the room. Usually I'd walk into a session and I'd find a note on the console telling me what instruments he wanted set up. I'd set up the drums and set up his bass and his guitars and his keyboards and his vocal mic so that he could walk in the room and just move from instrument to instrument to instrument, whether he was programming the drum machine, which he was a maestro at doing, or he was sitting behind an acoustic drum kit and playing the drums. He'd lay that down first, then he'd lay down the bass and lay down the guitar and lay down his keyboard pads and his vocals. Really very remarkable. The average musician doesn't work like that. Most records are made with a a group of musicians coming into the studio and each one takes an instrument and Musicians don't play everything on a record, but Prince had that ability, so he did. 
Although Prince preferred recording alone, he trusted Susan with his ear, which might be one of the highest compliments a musician can give an engineer. Prince usually worked quickly, decisively, and quietly. He was well known for being taciturn. He didn't like to make small talk really didn't like it. He could be very talkative, but only it's at certain times and certain occasions. The studio was his workspace, and he didn't want to waste energy having conversation, which is why he liked having his instruments all set up and ready to go when he walked in the door. So I'd get a call, usually in the morning from his management or somebody. Sometimes he'd just call me directly and say, come to the studio. It was always immediate. Come right now and set up these things. So I'd arrive at the studio before he would, and the studio could be his home studio at home in Minnesota before Paisley Park was built, or if we were working in Los Angeles, it would be Sunset Sound Studios, the big room, Studio 3. He'd come in, and he'd get right to work. He would be very quiet until that record was three-quarters of the way done, and he could kind of tell, okay, so this is what this is. Now I know what this record is. Because the the great truth is that you have to hear a record really before you know what it is. So once it was in good enough shape to be able to assess it and see how it might fit in the canon of his work, then uh, he relaxed and got more talkative. And then he might talk about just whatever was on his mind. It could be world news, or it could be what was going on with his record label, or his general thoughts on people and their nature, or he might talk about his band or plans for the future. He didn't talk a lot, but it was after that record had passed that critical point that he'd get talkative. Prince may not have talked much in his recording sessions with Susan, but once Darlin' Nikki was released, it set tongues a-wagging and jaws a-droppin'. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance, an emergency repair, or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. In 1985, Tipper Gore bought the Purple Rain soundtrack as a present for her 11-year-old daughter. This is what happened when they listened to Darla Nikki together, according to her book, Raising PG Kids in an X-Rated Society. Quote, the vulgar lyrics embarrassed both of us. At first, I was stunned, but then I got mad. Millions of Americans were buying Purple Rain with no idea what to expect. Thousands of parents were giving the album to their children, many even younger than my daughter, unquote. 
The Parents Music Resource Center made Darlin' Nikki and songs like it a hot topic in the nation's capital. Here's one of the PMRC members, Susan Baker. There is a new element of vulgarity, violence, and brutality to women that is unprecedented. While a few outrageous recordings have always existed in the past, the proliferation of songs glorifying rape, sadomasochism, incest, the occult, and suicide by a growing number of bands illustrates this escalating trend that is alarming. I know the parents' music resource community was up in arms about Darling Nikki. They did have some risque lyrics, but uh, for me, I was a youngster myself. I thought it was exciting and wonderful, and, and I loved it. Was the crusade against music by artists like Prince really about protecting young consumers, or was it about censoring artists? That debate went to the Senate in 1985 for a hearing where artists like Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister and Frank Zappa testified against the censorship of musicians. Here's Zappa talking about the issue in a CNN interview. The whole idea of putting warnings on records is based on a faulty premise to begin with, because what is it that you're warning people about? Words connected with sex? There's nothing illegal about sex. There's also nothing dirty about sex. By November 1985, the Recording Industry Association of America had agreed to put parental advisory labels on certain albums at their own discretion. The black and white stickers many of us remember from the 1990s did not label the nature of the content like the Parents Music Resource Center originally wanted. They just read, parental advisory, explicit content. There was no way to tell if the music contained sexual lyrics or those that promoted violence, drug, and alcohol use, the occult, or if it simply had cursing. Following this decision, major retailers like Walmart wouldn't stock albums with a parental advisory sticker, so some artists started censoring their own lyrics to avoid loss of sales. Tipper Gore and her fellow committee members may have wanted a way for parents to monitor what their children were listening to, but when I became a teenager, it was a surefire way of getting me to pick up a CD or a cassette. Gosh, I always think about intentionality, what people are trying to do. And these folks, led by Tipper Gore, believed they were doing something good, something necessary and right, protecting young people. But intention and execution can be two different things. And uh, the way they were going about protecting young people was going to hurt others, was going to hurt artists. And ironically, it's it's just going to make young people want to write songs with even more risque and challenging lyrics. So um, I admire them for wanting to look out for young people. But in my opinion, it, it was a very misguided attempt. There are better ways to look out for young people. I was around seven years old when Darla Nikki came out, so I don't remember a lot of the immediate reactions or how people were responding to it. But I do remember that Prince did not respond beyond letting the music speak for itself. Did he ever, in private moments that you can recall, share anything? Or, like, was he disappointed? He didn't say anything that I recall in the studio. If he had really raised a fuss and had strong opinions about it, I'm sure I'd remember it. So I think in my recollection, he just let it ride. I was pretty damn proud of Prince for not saying a word. Just staying quiet. I admire Frank Zappa and Dee Snyder and others who went in front of Congress and spoke 
eloquently, brilliantly about how we needed to not be censoring art, particularly pop music lyrics. Here's some of what musician Frank Zappa said in that Senate hearing. Bad facts make bad law, and people who write bad laws are, in my opinion, more dangerous than songwriters who celebrate sexuality, freedom of speech, freedom of religious thought, and the right to due process for composers, performers, and retailers are imperiled if the PMRC and the major labels consummate this nasty bargain. Prince had the intellect in order to do something like that. He could have. He could have made a, a, a wonderful contribution to that conversation. But when Prince would be stuck and having to make a decision between speaking and non-speaking, he was more likely to keep quiet, which takes a lot of discipline to hold back and let the scene play itself out, as it did. Prince had incredible foresight, and he was wise enough at that time to just step back, keep quiet, let it play out. It'll burn itself out, and it did. While Prince didn't speak out publicly about being on the Filthy 15, and usually didn't offer explanations about the blunt sexuality of his music, Susan thinks he often felt the need to balance it somewhere else on the album. And if you go back to listen to his albums in their entirety, you can hear that balance. Whenever Prince would record a song that was specifically talking about lustful feelings or sexual experiences, he often would want to redeem himself for having gone down that street. And uh, in the sequence on the album, you'll hear at the end of Darling Nikki, it segues out. We made a little crossfade piece to fit in there where Prince is, um, if I recall, I haven't heard it in years, it's asking for forgiveness, asking God for forgiveness for having transgressed and uh, sort of promising to be good, which he did frequently on songs that were of a highly sexual nature. What Susan is referring to here is something called backmasking. Backmasking is when a lyric is purposely recorded backward into a track that is meant to be played forward. It can sound a bit like gibberish, but it's also pretty evocative, like it is on Darling Nikki. One of my sister's college boyfriends had Purple Rain on vinyl, and one time while they were out, I played it on the living room record player, risking the chance of ruining it by spinning the album in reverse. Hello, how are you? In case you couldn't make that out, Prince is singing, Hello, how are you? I'm fine, because I know that the Lord is coming soon. I wonder if Tipper Gore or any of the other parents who hit stop on Darla Nikki heard Prince's pledge of faith after giving himself over to his lust for Nikki's relentless grind. We'll probably never know. Prince was one of those artists who put what he truly felt into the music. If only people would take the time to listen. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, 
the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Darla Nikki forever changed the way the record industry handled the sale of music with explicit lyrics. But that raunchy song about a woman who was bold, desired, and worthy of a man begging her to come back was making an impact on young fans like me during the repressive Reagan era of the 1980s. Ultimately, it expanded the minds of a whole new generation of young people when it came to sexuality and identity. What was it about Purple Rain? Oh, it was nasty, and I was young. (laughs) And I heard Darlin' Nikki, and he was introducing me to, like, sexuality in a way that was like, ooh, she's doing what with a magazine? (laughs) This is Lene Denise, a DJ and college professor who teaches Prince Studies. I wish I had taken a class like that in college. She heard Darlin' Nikki with her mother, but she wasn't shamed for it. And it was listening to Prince that helped her realize she was gay. Prince made a role in making me gay, if I'm honest, you know? So I think that, like, Wendy and Lisa, Darlene, Nikki, Sheila E., Sheena Easton, like, like this group of women and characters that he talked about, Dorothy Parker, like, you know, I think that he inspired a kind of imaginative thinking that made me understand the sexiness of a wayward woman. And what a wayward woman was was someone who's just like unafraid of her of her power and somehow had some power over him. I love the idea of a wayward woman, someone unpredictable and risky. That's exactly who Darla Nikki was. And when I became an adult, it was something I wanted to emulate. The women that he's saying about and thinking about Darla Nikki in particular was like, for some reason, I felt like they had some kind of independence. It wasn't the typical boy chases girl story and, ooh, I just want to get with you. It's like he was singing about what made them unique and like they didn't seem to be as super interested in him in this way. I feel like in a way he was almost like having me think about what makes a woman sexy. When Purple Rain was released, Prince began touring with his band, The Revolution, which featured Wendy Melvoin on guitar and Lisa Coleman on keyboards. Wendy and Lisa were often paired together in songs, videos, and appearances, making people wonder about the nature of their relationship. Years later, Wendy would confirm that they were a couple at the time. Because he had Wendy and Lisa there who were together, I didn't know that at the time, but they certainly felt that Wendy, yes, Lisa, is the water warming up? Yes, I'm like, well, what's happening? Who's in the same bath? Are they in the same tub? Like, what's happening? And so darling Nikki was also this kind of queer as a non-normal character, woman character that he was writing around and, and organizing rhythms around. Darla Nikki, the character, caused as much of a sensation as the song itself. When I became an adult, I wanted the power she had of shifting desires and ruining lives. I wanted to be a wayward woman, someone no one knew how to handle. I wanted to be the kind of woman to make a man memorialize her in song. I don't know if that's happened yet, but Nikki's brought me to you. Prince understood the appeal of forbidden fruit, and Darla Nikki is one of many examples of that. 
It's threaded into the lyrics of some of his greatest hits, like Get Off when he croons, It's hard for me to say what's right when all I want to do is wrong. As soon as you deny yourself something, it becomes the thing you most need. At seven years old, I understood this. I knew I was different. I felt things and knew things I probably should not. My first kiss had already happened in kindergarten when I was five years old with two boys at the same time. A Southern Black girl raised in Nashville, Tennessee, I already knew I was not supposed to know anything about sex, but I did, and I was fascinated by it. It's hard to tell if the parental advisory stickers saved any children from being influenced into sin, but it landed on several Prince albums after Purple Rain. Being labeled as explicit did not stop Prince from making music, and it didn't stop him from becoming one of the most successful artists of all time. In fact, it may have helped cement his place in American music history. Next week on The Prince Mixtape, how Prince became synonymous with ruffled shirts, lace, and booty cutouts. The Prince Mixtape is produced by CNN Audio and Pineapple Street Studios. It's hosted by me, Nicole Perkins. Our producers are Emmanuel Hapsis, Beandria July, and Natalie Brennan. Our managing producer is Aaron Kelly. Our editor is Darby Maloney. Mix and original music by Hannes Brown. Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. And our assistant engineers are Sharon Bardalis and Jade Brooks. At CNN, our senior producer is Felicia Patinkin, and our executive producer is Abby Fintress Swanson. Nicole Pesaru and James Andres designed our artwork. Executive producers for Pineapple Street Studios are Gabrielle Lewis, Barry Finkel, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. Special thanks to Noah Camuso, Hannah Park, Katie Hinman, Tamika Balance-Kalosny, Sonia Tun, Chip Grabo, Anissa Gray, Frank Lomonti, Steph Garrett, Graham Duda, Andrea White, Lindsay Abrams, Robert Mathers, Lisa Namaro, Kira Posey, and John Dianora. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.